Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Let them destroy themselves. If they want to remove all the fun from their life, yeah. God bless them. Go ahead. Ruin your fucking lives. You people are miserable losers. And I hate you. And I never want to see you at a bar, tiki or otherwise. So you know what? Keep reading these articles. Keep reading articles like that. Keep having all the fun extracted from your life. And I'll never have to fucking run into you. The more articles you write about this, for me, it's a roadmap for where I should hang out. Because you, you fuckers, won't be there. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. They are of great importance, and they've really they've helped you make it through this very difficult difficult year. And it has been a difficult year for many people. And we'll, we'll talk about that. And by we, I am, of course, referring to Matt Welch, Shatter at Large Breezy Magazine, who's in the, well, not in the building. He's in his building because we're doing this virtually. This is what we do now. Um, he's also wearing a Santa hat, which means that oh his filthy God. bandana is perhaps getting washed someplace. <laughs> um, I think I got a, I think it's on underneath. Oh my God. Oh, God, you're so gross. Don't show us. And he's turning on lights now so that we can Why see him a little better. On? I don't want to nice. see that. Got a ring light. Gross. Oh, enough. my gosh. Oh, you look like gosh. the weak guy Michael in the <laughs> Vice News, also engaged in, in, the, in the room, so to speak. God. I want to know how both of you are. But I also, I also want to talk to our illustrious guest because we've, we've been trying to put this together for a little while. Delighted to have with us Greg Lukianov, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in education. They do free speech stuff. Greg is a G and he is joining us. And Greg, we are delighted to have you. Um, I'm glad we can finally do this. Merry Christmas, yes. everybody. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas is what we say here. And happy festival. <laughs> do you even celebrate Christmas, you atheists? You atheist Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a confused person. I had a great awakening this year and Kwanzaa is it for me. It's Kwanzaa. Yeah. Hands I just remember when when the ACLU was like uh, associated with constantly trying to get crosses taken down off public lands yeah. and stopping, you know, uh, uh, religious education. And that was one of the like early impetuses for the right or other people to hate, hate on the ACLU because they're godless atheists in addition yeah. to being whatever else the hell. And like that, that, that one never stuck. Fire's been around for 20 years. I know this because I've been to the, I think the 10th and the 20th anniversary. The 10th was 10th better, Christine. Greg. Was it fifteen? The tenth, the, tenth was, the tenth was electric. It was beautiful, but like, uh, but like, they've you've never been hit with the godless atheist uh, uh, like uh, critique. It's more like, oh no, there's not really a free speech problem on campus, or that doesn't really matter, which is a, a little bit different. Kind of funny because I, I I do radio, you know, in different parts of the country, and I've been an atheist in seventh grade, but but I do remember uh, being on some like Bible Belt show uh, at, at one point, and I, I, I explained that I was baptized Russian Orthodox, but raised Catholic. And the, the the host asked me, it's like, have you ever considered converting to Christian? And suddenly I was getting all defensive about Catholicism. I'm like, Catholics are Christian. Yeah, what does that yeah. mean? <laughs> <laughs> You're Russian Orthodox? Look at that beard. Is he not a Russian? He looks like, he he looks like, like what are you talking about? He's a red beard. He doesn't look like a Russian. What are you That's the Russians don't look like that. He's an undercover Russian. Viking. 
bring it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's you, the redheaded stranger over here. You, I wish you had a video, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, because there is a man who is in his, I assume, in his apartment. There is a bookshelf behind him. There are no books on it, but one copy of his own book. That's right. <laughs> one book, and it's his own book. Yeah. Literally, you need nothing else. <laughs> no, that is the most pompous human in the world. He's like, I don't have books. I have my own book. I love it. He's going to get it. Oh, no. You do. You don't need any other books <laughs> except for mine. The coddling of the American mind. <laughs> Greg Lukianoff and, and Jonathan Haidt. Um, that was a bestseller, by the way, wasn't it? Yeah, nine weeks. Big. Wow, nine weeks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still a little bit like it's it, it it's getting close to four hundred thousand copies, um, which wow, is. Are you kidding? No, we're gonna we're gonna push you over the edge tonight. Tonight is the night. Yeah, four hundred one. Jeez, that for people who don't know this, and I had a brief stint working in publishing. You know, it used to be really hard to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Of course, it's different now, and the ebook stuff is separate. But you could get on the New York Times bestseller list selling like 9,000, 10,000 copies in a week. And that was not the case in the past. Yeah. And so 400,000 copies is a lot of books, uh, especially in this day and age when uh, fewer people um, are, are buying books. That is astonishing. Well, congratulations. It, it, it did make me happy that, that um, it, it got right. Um, it should have gotten back on the bestseller list again when White Fragility and some of these uh, other books were like bestsellers. <laughs> it made me like happy that, that they were selling like 5,000 copies a week during that time. So, you know, at least there was some balance. Is it wrong for me to say, because you're here with us, that that I have to just admit that White Fragility is a better book than yours? It just is. I mean, <laughs> it's just there's so much more to it. Every page, it tells me that white people are just fragile. <laughs> they just don't get it. Have you read that book, Greg? I, I have an answer. Yeah. No, the book, what the book actually says is white people are remarkable. They're the most important people. And it is the lowly black man who is fragile and desperately needs their help. And essentially, if you say that and you try to convince white people of this and they won't accept it, that is also white fragility. That is literally yeah. what that book is literally about, about the exceptionalness of white people. Yes. So you could, you know, kind of flip it. Flip it. Well, I want us to to get into to the conversation because there's a whole lot that I've been eager to talk to Greg about. I've actually only done sort of one. I'm actually, I don't even know if I should disclose this. Can I disclose this, Greg? Is yeah, this okay? Do it. You know what I'm getting ready to say. Okay, good. I've only done one in-person event and people like us, we tend to go places and see people throughout the year or speak at things occasionally. Um, so we're used to doing that. And I've only done one of those things all year. And I did it with uh, Greg. And um, I'm delighted to be able to talk to you again because we, we talked about some of these themes, but it struck me while we were getting ready to talk, you know, I thought for sure we would do like a year in review, like uh, the battle for free speech rights, how are, how are things on the campuses. But in preparing for this, I revisited coddling mm -hmm. and the degree to which this book was just sort of spookily prescient is pretty astonishing. And I think you are an important person to be talking to right now to try to wrap our hands around how we got to here. And we'll, we'll talk about what the here is, but 
Before we get into the meat of it, maybe you could just give the listeners a sense of what you all do at FIRE, because there will be some people who are completely unfamiliar with your work there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, um, uh, nicknamed FIRE, we were founded back in 1999 uh, by a conservative-leaning libertarian, Alan Charles Coors, who's a professor of the Enlightenment at University of Pennsylvania, and Harvey Silverglate, a, a liberal-leaning libertarian, um, a former ACLU guy. Uh, and we were founded to defend free speech, due process, and academic freedom on campus. And this came from experiences, uh, you know, it, starting in the mid-80s when Harvey and Alan both started noticing students were increasingly getting in trouble, not just what for they what they did, but for what they said. Um, and this led to a book called The Shadow University, which came out in 98. And Harvey likes to joke that um, he thought that was going to, like, solve the whole thing. And then instead, they got thousands of case submissions of professors and students all across the country asking for help. So they founded FIRE in 99. And I've been there. I, I started as the first legal director back in 2001. Um, and then I became president in 2006. And we defend uh, professors and students when they get in trouble. And I, and I always have to say, even in 2001, it was already uh, – and I, and I came from working at the ACLU in Northern Cal uh, California. Then I studied the history of freedom of speech. Like I specialized in this stuff. And I was still shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you said back in 2001. And, uh, and things, you know, things getting so much worse, though, in 2013, 2014 is what, what led us to write the original article, Coddling, and then eventually the book. And it seemed to just be getting, you know, some, you'd have some years that were not so bad and some years that seemed a little bit better. And this is easily the worst year I've seen um, in my career when it comes to uh, free speech on campus. 2020. Yep. Why do you, why do you say that? Um, you know, because I see these examples all the time and I paid attention to this and just to Shout out the book. I mean, the Shadow University was was you know influential to me. I, I devoured that. I remember when it came out. It was I think Free Press that published it when Adam Bellow was was running it. Um, yeah. And um, I loved that book, and because I was experiencing a lot of those things. It was after I graduated from college, but I experienced a lot of those things on campus. And you know, it was a pretty lonely existence at UMass Amherst, which is a really bad place. I think you get a get a. Uh, uh, a red is that how you grade them red green uh yellow sort of thing is that isn't that how fire does it uh I, i'm glad that umass is always yeah, we, in, we do a stoplight yeah they're always out, out performing for a state university <laughs> um, and uh, that book was hugely influential and you know so now i think we've mentioned this on the podcast these, some of these things that are so crazy that you see on campus I used to send them to all my friends. Now I don't even bother. I just, there's so many of them, but it just, maybe I'm just numb to it at, the, at this point, but what is it that, that made, makes you think that about 2020 rather than say, you know, 2016 or 17, which seemed equally as bad to me. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty much something that, that it would be hard to know unless you, unless you followed fire. Um, the uh, uh, it's just because we receive more case submissions um, in a huge explosion over the summer than we've ever seen. Um, it, we, we usually get like, June is usually a pretty quiet time. Now, first of all, we were expecting everything to calm down because of COVID. I mean, campuses across the country were, clo were closed. So we were like, okay, you know, things are going to quiet down. Um, and, you know, first there was this little spat of cases where schools like NYU were trying to tell professors, uh, medical doctors at schools that they had to go through the PR flack if they wanted to talk to the press about COVID. Um, my friend Nicholas Christakis blew that into a million pieces because it was such an obnoxious thing to ask doctors to do. 
But then after um, the death of George Floyd in, in May, uh, you know, at, at a time when I was kind of hoping we might have reexamined policing and, and thought of like real nuts and bolts type things to, to, to fix about our country. Um, like, and Reason Magazine, by the way, has done one of the best sort of explanations of actual things we could do. Um, what happened instead was an explosion of activists trying to get professors fired, trying to get students, um, get their admission to schools uh, uh, pulled, uh, repealed or withdrawn. And that was so, so in June, we usually get about 50 case submissions on, on a pretty busy year. We get we get 50. We got like 300 in June. this year and it it just kept on going so i'm saying it's it's the worst year i've seen just because of the sheer number of cases we're seeing which is which you can't really necessarily tell by the press because the press is a little bit overwhelmed by this stuff and you know and there are also lots of people actively diminishing it and also it's happening in the press like the amount of the amount of stories you can write about this tend to be limited when the poetry foundation is going completely like crazy when the you know, <laughs> director of, a, of an art museum in San Francisco has to resign uh, because he uh, answered a question in a way that people thought was insensitive. Like there was an absolute spasm of this stuff at the highest level at the New York Times at a bunch of places. And we've talked about it in the media a lot here before. But I think that that crowded out the usual talk about college campus. So I'd be interested in hearing like what was uh, presuming that there is a tie in with the George Floyd thing and just with the overall craziness of this media, the, the sort of the nervous breakdown over kind of race and cancellations or defenestrations is probably a better way of looking at it at, uh, at big cultural institutions. What were the categories of that, of those 300? Did they, was there something that was tied in to George Floyd where they're like, uh, you know, you have to um, profess your, your, or prove your anti-racism bona fides uh, or else, you know, you have to leave. What, what, what did it look like? Yeah, as, as, as Matt can attest, you know, for, for one thing that I, I, I tended to say, you know, anytime I was given a chance to talk about these things is that um, uh, not all cases are political correctness run amok on campus. A lot of them are uh, a lot of times it's the left getting in trouble on campus. And we, you know, obviously defend defend that, too. But I also complain a lot that there's this kind of big middle of not particularly political cases where it's just some administrator, you know, trying to get uh, students to back off or to not protest or to. Um, not make it, it literally this is a real case that I've gone uh, I've talked to death not make fun of the parking garage program um, that, that, that they have uh, I've no. seen so many cases about <laughs> over the years and that's been the case for the overwhelming majority of my career but I will say the thing that that the 300 cases we saw and and, and the hundreds more that we were, we're still seeing is that they uh, became largely overwhelmingly ideological um, like mm. the, these were Someone said something nasty in a Facebook chat uh, two years ago, and I want that person kicked uh, out of school. Uh, it, it, even at University of Chicago, um, which is has been one of the best schools when it comes to our issues, uh, Dorian Abbott, um, he uh, – is, this was a professor who who did a, did a couple of videos talking about how um, if we really want to help uh, women in the sciences, we shouldn't be doing it by having some kind of affirmative action approach to it. We should just treat every we sh- we, we should support excellence with um, you know uh, in in a completely blind kind of way. It just not be patronizing about it. And they, I mean, they really they, they, the students there really went for this dude. And even though University of Chicago stood by him, this guy's been you know I think this guy is currently teaching a section that has one person in it. 
But, but Greg, this is, uh, this is crazy and fascinating to me. Is you say something that one would imagine that when, uh, you know, Alan Coors and Harvey Silverglade started this uh, organization that you took over, that I'd imagine that it would be something different, you know, 20 years down the road. You wouldn't be saying mm-hmm. things like the students came for these people. It would be the administrators, right? That was always the fear. That the administrators were like, oh, and now I see more and more, the students won't have it. The students don't want this kind of language. And I don't know if it's this sort of tyranny of the minority here. Everyone's terrified. You know, the teachers are afraid of the pupils kind of thing is that it seems increasingly like the students are actually running the asylum in a way. And they are the ones that are demanding protection from supposedly dangerous ideas. Is that is that wrong? Um, that, that, is, that is the biggest shift. And, that, and that's the shift that ultimately led to uh, coddling the American mind was that, uh, and I say this to death, but it bears repeating. For most of my career, the people who were um, trying to limit speech on campus were overwhelmingly the huge, huge armies of administrators on campus mm. that, that, that pay so much for. Um, and the students were largely rolling their eyes at this. Actually, the students were the best constituency for free speech from 2001 to 2012, absolutely reliably better than professors, much better than administrators. They would stand up for, you know, offensive comedians. They'd stand up for their fellow students sometimes, for, for, for professors. And I had heard stories of the of the students being um, more radicalized against free speech in the late 80s and early 90s. Also, professors were, too. Um, but I hadn't seen that in my own career. And in 2013, 2014, seemingly overnight, we got this uh, uh, campuses just started blowing up with students demanding new speech codes, whether they be microaggression policies or trigger warning policies or just uh, that people be disinvited. Um, And the funny thing is the media wasn't paying all that much attention when it was um, uh, conservatives who were getting disinvited. But when it started becoming people like the head of the uh, International Monetary Fund or the chancellor of Berkeley, they were like, wait, wait, wait. And, And that's that kind of snapped people away. Also, Condoleezza Rice, since she was very high, high profile, that, that got people's attention. So, And the change was not subtle. It was huge. And it was very sharp and very dramatic to those of us who were on the ground. Um, and honestly, and really trying to figure out what was so different about Generation Z, which we were find out that basically this was a, a new generation hitting campus, led to the, the pretty much the entire book, Coddling the American Mind, is trying to figure out what's so different about this generation of students. So I want to talk... Um, a little bit more about the book and particularly about these these campus visits and these disinvitations. Um, and the disinvitations are something that have been talked about a lot uh, in a number of different contexts. Folks used to tell me um, frequently that there's nothing going on in campus, you're overreacting. Um, and simultaneously, I would hear, you know, um, well, what's going on on campus is these disadvantaged people are are finally having an opportunity and you just feel uncomfortable because it's it's you know, people coming for your position of power, not not telling me that they're coming for my position of power, but you you know that you get the drift. But <laughs> there's a specific event, I believe, involving Milo Yiannopoulos coming to campus and things getting uniquely out of hand. And you seem to uh, describe this in your book as kind of a, a watershed moment that really, I think, sets the stage for a lot yeah. of the kinds of things that we've seen in uh, 2020. Yeah. Um, so in 2017, we'd already been dealing with... Um... Uh, with a couple of years of it being pretty bad uh, in, in terms of sort of like the great, great awakening type stuff um, that happened that started after, in about 2014. Um, but 2017 just took it to a whole new level uh, because 
you know, Miley Yiannopoulos was trying to speak um, at Berkeley um, and it turned into a full scale riot. And when we were researching that section for the book, uh, we went really deep into it and we um, looked, uh, you know, at every video we could find about it. And it was so much worse than I thought. I mean, they're extremely lucky people didn't die. Some people were very badly injured during the whole thing. And some of the people who were uh, assaulted, you know, included people from the student press. You know, uh, it was it was much worse and scarier than I thought. And it happened in the same um, semester, semester, you know, like within within a couple months of the Allison Stanger getting permanently injured, defending Charles Murray, a professor she disagrees with, uh, but who she was defending from an angry mob. Um, that Heather McDonald uh, ha- having trying to have an event at Claremont McKenna and having uh, having to basically run for it because students were physically preventing anyone from getting into her talk. And then they came to where she was recording and she had to go to like a like a backup site. There were a number of incidents uh, that season um, that involved actual uh, violence, some on sizable scale. And, and that was new. And, and certainly that kind of stuff happened in the 1970s, but before my time. And that really scared me. Uh, it sca- scared me and John tremendously. The good news is we haven't seen large scale violence like that since. Um, but we have seen uh, sort of an intensifying of the uh, of w- what is now called cancel culture, the idea that you know, I'm going to ruin my uh, my opponent's life. I'm going to get this person fired from their job, kicked out as a professor, expelled from school, um, which is, you know, it's been funny, like this whole debate about, you know, some people, re- and I know, Camille, you don't like the term cancel culture, um, but I like it because it's a phenomenon I've been talking about since I wrote a short book called Freedom from Speech in 2014, where it's just like, it, it's, it's a different thing to say, you know, basically to say what I, I've always believed you should be able to say, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> and wow, I'm going to make sure you never work again. Yeah. Um, and, and having like a real sort of cultural movement in that direction and people going nothing to see here. It's like, don't you understand that we used to work with people all the time we disagreed with? Greg, let's take it some, somewhere in the middle of that, sure. right? Of allowing somebody to come campus and then saying, let's ruin their life. I'm going to give you the the argument that one hears about all of the people that you mentioned sort of individually. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos is a troll. He's there um, trying to provoke outrage, trying to get people out there throwing bricks through windows because it benefits his cause in his brand. That's number one. Let's go to Charles Murray. Charles Murray is a scientific racist. Uh, He comes to campus. He makes uh, black students feel uncomfortable because he basically says they have no worth in the way that one would, you know, imagine they would and, you know, coming to campus and say, you have a smaller brain size. I'm, you know, simplifying the argument a little bit. And, uh, you know, Heather McDonald is some similar too. she defends, you know, cops that uh, oppress and uh, hunt black people. So there's a, there's a personal safety issue that's often said. And there is the issue of, um, you know, he's just in the Milo sense, He's just trying to provoke us. It's not real debate that he's after. He's after uh, provocation and the violence that uh, eventually comes. And of course, to add a little addendum to that is what, you know, as, as, as you very well know, is that, that universities can get around a lot of this stuff saying we're not canceling speech, but it, it, it's a public safety hazard now because the heckler's veto has become the rioter's veto. veto. We don't want that on campus. It's putting our students in jeopardy and in danger, so we're going to shut the whole thing down. So what do you make of that kind of series of arguments that are kind of all interrelated? 
And, and can I interject something really quickly? Because, Greg, you mentioned cancel culture and my aversion to the phrase. And I think this is actually germane yep. to the question that you just posed, Moynihan. Like, the issue for me isn't so much that I dislike the phrase in particular. I, I worry that the phrase mm-hmm. is one too easily caricatured because it sounds kind of mm-hmm. like silly. Like, cancel culture, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, but the problem that I have is people place all of the emphasis on the cancellation which means that we start to look at the anatomy of particular circumstances. Well, is what he said sufficiently bad that we ought to throw him off of campus? Or is what she said so far out of bounds that Mm -hmm. no one can ever say this on campus? And for me, the issue is that I am not terribly concerned about any one cancellation. There are Mm -hmm. and have always been things that you ought not say if you want to remain popular, um, if you don't want to offend people, if you don't want to risk to risk disinvitations, because disinvitations are a thing. Um, I think what I've tried to point to is the the cultural dynamic that's happening. And that's what I, I think people fail to pay sufficient attention to. Like that's the thing that's unfolding and that's underneath all of this. And, you know, when you talk about the the events surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos' visit and things turning violent in a way that surprises you when you actually look at the video. I mean, I I can't say that I've seen the footage. I I suspect I'd probably be somewhat shocked as well. Um, but that's the piece of it, you know, this kind of determination to end people, as opposed yeah. to you know having a an argument on the merits of that it's not about whether or not Milo is interested in an argument. No one is, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, so uh, to address the point that we get a lot about Milo um, and we pretty much say this in the book, I'm, I'm no fan of Milo Yiannopoulos. And, is, and he, but he's also a provocateur. And what's amazing is sort of like the present focus that you hear in these arguments, that essentially it's as if nothing happened before. Well, this year, it feels like nothing happened before 2020. Um, but a lot of times it's like nothing happened before 2013, 2014. And provocateurs have been coming to campus forever um, on, and on purpose. Like, I mean, goodness, for goodness sakes, if you watch um, one of the things that actually made me feel like the overall health of uh, of free speech in the United States w- w- was actually pretty good, despite what I was seeing on campus, was coming home and turning on Comedy Central and seeing just how freaking deeply offensive they could actually be. And, and things did not get shut down. I'm like, OK, you know, comedians are still still on the ball. Like this is actually a sign of this is a sign of our health. Even if, if it's making me squirm sometimes, <laughs> then, you know, we're, we're probably in pretty good shape. And it's as if like we're in a completely different millennium from from that. So so like you know it's one of the reasons why we did a movie about um, uh, Lenny Bruce, you know, about the um, the great uh, you know provocateur comedian of the 1960s that Nick Gillespie always likes to point out. He doesn't think it was that funny, um, but who uh, you know his whole point was to was to provoke his audiences um, and. You know, provocative comedians come to campus all the time. Provocative speakers always do. And in this case, Milo himself had spoken at like 20 different schools before. But suddenly, you know, when an angry mob gets together to try to shut him down, um, instead of being like, wow, violence is never okay," um, the university gets a lot more squishy around it. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, no, I mean, this is provoking, you know. And the, the most horrifying thing that I should have mentioned when Camille brought it up about the, the um, uh, Milo case was not just the violence. It was the student newspaper, you know, running uh, within a week of it, op-ed after op-ed saying, you know, uh, 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 our violence isn't violence, uh, their words are violence. And it's like all of these bad, messed up arguments about how 
we were not engaged in violence by uh, trashing you know, uh, things and smashing stuff, um, but he was engaged in violence because he was saying offensive things. And and this was, you know, op-ed after op-ed. And we, we actually go c- kind of deeply into these because I, it's horrifying when, you, when you're a First Amendment free speech person to, to, to read this stuff. Hell, it's horrifying to read it if you're a citizen. When it comes to Charles Murray, you know, it, it, Charles Murray, it, he's someone that I, I have to confess as someone who, you know, uh, you know, went to law school, I very much, you know, bought into without really thinking about it very critically that, you know, these are forbidden writers that you should never actually read. Um, And, uh, you know, I I read Coming Apart, for example, you know, when it came out, and it wasn't, you know, some kind of racist screed uh, that that, that, uh, so like, and that was one of the amazing things about about um, the people who came to run Charles Murray off campus was that uh, tons of them were asked, like even on camera, whether or not they'd actually read anything by him. And the answer was always no. Mm-hmm. And something effective, they, they didn't have to. I mean, um, Heather McDonald and I disagree uh, at, uh, on on all sorts of things. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the idea that people uh, as as uh, as pro cop as her haven't been coming to, to campus for decades, uh, you know, that's just it's just revisionism. So it, it wasn't that the kind of speakers who were going to campus suddenly changed in 2017. It was that our attitudes about being provoked changed, that our attitudes about having tolerating conservatives at all on campus for someone like like, like Heather. And this is something that I, that I have to point out a lot when people talk about, um, you know, try to minimize what's going on on campus when they're saying, oh, you're only talking about like this couple dozen conservative professors who are getting in trouble. And the answer is usually the professors getting in trouble aren't conservative because there aren't that many conservatives on campus in the first place when it comes to professors. When you when you look at the base rates of, and that was that was a genuine shock from working with height is I knew that the skew on, on a lot of campuses was. Uh, severe. I didn't realize that it was, you know, zero conservatives in some departments or 30 to one, you know, in, in different departments. So that we, we definitely have uh, progressed step and step and step and step away uh, to the point where um, when you, why, why sometimes when people throw up their hands about, oh, you're just con-, like, there was this incident where um, at the publisher of Jordan Peterson um, uh, up in Canada, and this happened just in the past couple of weeks, there was stories about um, uh, there being like a staff revolt when they found out that that Penguin, my, my, my publisher in Canada, was going to publish the next Jordan Peterson book. Uh, and that's, that's uh, employees, employees were crying um, when, when they found out. And in isolation, when, when I'm like, this is amazing um people are like oh it's just this one thing it's, mm-hmm. it's like yeah but when, <laughs> but, but uh, when you take in mind there's very few conservatives on campus uh, among professors to begin with um that what few are you know are uh, are running into situations where they're being canceled they're even recharacterizing people like brett weinstein as conservatives um in order to to, to get rid of them and then when you start seeing that that, that even when there, there are places like off campus where people like jordan peterson uh you, you know um uh can talk to his audience, or for that matter, Joe Rogan can talk to his audience. It's it's not enough that they just not be on campus. It's that they have to not exist in the world. And when you start adding up like all, all, all of the people, it really does. Um, it, it's just a pervasive attempt to sort of control information and knowledge. And that, of course, I'm with Jordan Peterson, is not the first time that that's happened. It happened at Hachette in New York when Woody Allen's book uh, was coming out. And one would imagine that the place where this wouldn't happen 
would be in publishing and people would like this kind of marketplace of ideas. Um, shocking that, uh, that, that it is happening. We actually, well, I actually said something on, I think it was on a Patreon episode of this podcast when the Harper's letter came out. And I'm wondering what you think of this. And the Harper's letter came out, um, which the backlash was shocking to me because it's a pretty benign letter. And I think, I think it went really like sort of way too far and being over the top and trying to be like, we hate Trump, but like, we're like not conservatives. And, you know, it's, you know, Salman Rushdie, who's nobody's conservative. Uh, There's Noam Chomsky on it. And they try to get this kind of mix in there. And of course, there is a counter letter, which is signed by a bunch of people I've never heard of. The the other one I'd heard of almost everybody. And the New York Times reports on this. And I made a comment about it that I wonder what the the age difference is, just just to be interested. And some, you know, insane listener who's great uh, went and did... Uh, you know, went through like uh, LinkedIn and all this stuff and found the kind of ages of everybody in the counter letter and found that the average age, Matt, do you remember this? It was like 30 something, maybe even younger. And the average age of the other 30, was like 69, 30 and uh, 56, uh, 59, something like that. Yeah. It was almost double the age. Yeah. On the, on the it, other it, was, it was amazing. And because the people who do this, who are at, you know, you mentioned Joe Rogan at Spotify, there was a revolt. Uh, and said, we, you know, you've paid him $105 million. You should get that money back or something. And they're, <laughs> they're constantly trying to assuage the, the, the you know, fr- fragile state of all their, their employees. And when I see this, I'm like, oh, you know, it makes sense. They've just come out of university and they've come out of university imbued with these ideas and this kind of self-righteousness about, you know, speech mm-hmm. violence, you old people don't get this. We're the new generation. We understand this. You said, you know, Gen Z is this thing. It's, you know, Tom Brokaw said the World War II generation was the greatest generation. This is clearly the worst generation in, in the history of mankind. <laughs> I, you know, I keep coming out and saying, you know, we cannot have these words, these books. I mean, the Woody Allen thing was like, I read Woody Allen's book, by the way, and actually I quite liked it. Um, I thought it was pretty, pretty funny. And, and, uh, and I'm glad that it, I'm glad that it was published, but what would you say is that moment? Is that pivot point where it really changes? Cause you give these, I mean, you, I think rightfully from my own experience, it seems correct to me of these time frames, right? So what was it recently where, where yeah. everything really changed and words became violence and equal to actual violence mm-hmm. on par with that? And the, the culture came from whinging and whining about ideas they didn't like to trying to actually stop them. They graduate and now they're trying to stop them in their workplaces. Yeah, that, that, uh, that is a great question. And in the book, uh, we talk about six different causal threads about why um, this generation is so different. And to be clear, we, I always, and since I'm, I'm always... I'm most animated about class issues than economic class issues. Um, the I wanted to be very clear that we're you know the bottom half of the economic distribution is facing entirely different issues than the people that we're talking about in coddling the American mind because mm-hmm. we're mostly talking about the kind of people who go to elite colleges, and those are if you look at the numbers they're horrifyingly um, uh, disproportionately people from like the t- upper like one percent of the economic distribution, which which I find mildly horrifying. 
Um, but we point to six different causal threads uh, in that. And we talk about the reason why we think all this stuff happened so sharply is partially because this was the first generation of uh, people g- growing up with iPhones in their pocket and social media in their pocket. And we think that that took a lot of existing trends and sped them up. Um, we think that that's at least it, it's well correlated with anxiety and depression Um uh, there's some debate around that. That's one of the more controversial things we say. Polarization. Um, I think that's just a, that's just a no brainer. The, the more you put people talking to each other, they agree with the more they tend to sort of splinter off. Uh, we do talk about paranoid parenting in the book. Um, I actually am doing something called catching up with coddling on my blog, The Eternally Radical Idea, um, where I just did the thing on how I think it, it and um, we, we probably should have done income stratification. Uh, we probably should have hit it harder in there because like the idea that you have these institutions that your kids can get into um, that will keep them in the upper economic classes, um, but they're brutally difficult to get into. And by the way, after that, your life might look brutally competitive. That's a pretty bleak outlook. So I I just wrote a little bit about that. Um, But in terms of like what uh, besides and, and when we talk to what happened in higher ed, of course, there's the new ideas of social justice is our final threat. And that's the one that like conservatives for the most part want us to say like first, but we put it last <laughs> on purpose. Uh, um, we talk about hyper-bureaucratization of universities, why, why universities have gotten so bad. And the most interesting one that we came to uh, was lack of time, uh, lack of unstructured free time. Um, and th- that takes a chapter to explain why, but we actually think that uh, polishing your kids so that they're good enough to get into Princeton from 6 a.m. To, to, to 9 o'clock at night is actually a very harmful thing to do to those kids. One of the things that I that I really think had a big had a big influence on this, but we were never able to prove. Um, but it lines up very well with why you'd have these these true believers of the social justice sort of like e- even the most technical aspects of it. I think was probably the anti-bullying movement. Um, and we did some research. I'd like to actually go more deeply into it, but it does line up very well when, when, when like the very strong anti-bullying uh, starts uh, blowing up. And in that in those kind of edu- when the, there were these anti-bullying programs, a lot of them did focus on power differentials and a lot of the very doctrinaire ideas that were coming out of education. And if you and if you want to get to kind of like one thing that that why we if you like the. One thing that we're going to be doing a little bit more of in, in, in the next year is focusing on, um, you know, ha- currently in the elite uh, high schools, you know, these are people who are overwhelmingly educated in the ed schools at schools across the country. And in terms of just hot and fast ideology and and com- almost complete lack of viewpoint diversity, at least politically, education schools are are are. are notorious for that. When, when we, we, had case, we had a case um, involving an education student who was mildly right of center at most, maybe even uh, left of center, who went to this, um, uh, who went to the education school at Stanford. And after people found out that she wasn't perfectly woke, um, they actually did that thing that people have nightmares of when they get uh, admitted to the, you know, the school of their dreams, saying we made a mistake in in, in, in admitting you um, that, that essentially it, w- it was due to some kind of error. So I do think that the that the idea that that the indoctrination that they get in uh, that they get in education schools is actually spreading to a lot of these kids coming in, and then they're taught these ideas as moral imperatives very early on. So that's that's part of my theory for why those ideas uh, are treated so much with, with a kind of, kind of religious faith is, is that they're inculcated early enough that they can be. And that's, and that's a hard problem to fight. So the anti-bullying movement created a new 
generation of bullies. That's good to know. Matt? I mean, wait wait till uh, Livia, Livia gets a couple of years older, uh, Michael, uh, and you'll be accused of bullying when you say normal observational things at the dinner table about various people. Uh, Greg, you uh, we're, we're recording, like, seriously, like, uh, uh, hey, your friend, the 12-year-old boy is wearing uh, dresses and uh, eyeliner now. Stop bullying him. Like, that's, <laughs> I was just, what? I wore dresses and eyeliner, and I look better than he did. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're uh, convinced that he's ugly. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, better looking. Show a little line. Show a little yes. pride in this. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday before Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Festivus. It's actually Festivus today. Um, Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. And, racist. Whatever. Uh, real holidays. Happy Ron Karenga Day. Uh, no, but today, uh, Greg, you uh, wrote a 67-tweet thread. And if there's ever <laughs> if there was ever an actual reason to cancel somebody, yeah! 67-tweet thread. Um, he did this in response to a piece by Sean Illing, who's also a listener. I'm sure, uh, hopefully, mispronouncing his last name. Um, he writes for Fox, <laughs> um, in which you were... Uh, basically saying, hey, look, you know, this is a problem. And I'm and I'm paraphrasing you. I'm exasperated, uh, Lukianov uh, sort of says, uh, with people who are keep sort of saying that either cancel culture is not a, a big or real problem or like that the campus free speech problem is not, you know, in the scheme of things, a big deal. Um, so my question channeling Sean a little bit um, is, mm-hmm. um, does he have a point when he says, hey, look, yes, um, this is a, an issue, but this is an issue that is happening at a moment when we've never had more free speech, right? Like it's a paradox. We have a paradox of freedom. Um, there's more freedom and social media is part of that freedom. You can do things with social media that were unimaginable even in 2014 when some of the stuff started really going south, um, the way that you can communicate with, with other people. So um, do you agree with the assessment that uh, even while all of these things that are kind of obvious and bad and weird that are happening, um, that it's happening in conjunction with a historically expansionary concept and practice of free speech. No. And it's kind of funny. because I, I, th- I thought you were going to relay Sean's argument in the most favorable light without reminding me of the language that actually got me to write 60, you know, 67. <laughs> um, and, you know, and the half British part of me always wants to say, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to apologize because people sometimes thought that I was, I was might, might've been unfairly singling him out. But I say in like my third tweet, this is like the fifth thing I've read this week where basically people are saying, oh, there's no free speech problem, or maybe free speech is problematic, or people don't really understand free speech or, um, and it just it was like one after the other after the other. And there's plain language in the piece saying that exactly like you just said, that speech has never been freer. And that's just nonsense. Um, the speech was freer in 2005. Speech was freer in 2015. Uh, and so what I start out with in that long one, and it was partially because I wanted to make the argument to everybody because I, I'd heard this argument too many times. I started pointing out the global picture and how much that has um, uh, clamped down j- just in the past even you know, a year, let alone five years. And of course, I start with Hong Kong, which is kind of like, hmm. and, and the, if, and honestly, if it had been written more precisely, 
Um, I wouldn't have written a long, uh, you know, a, a long tweet storm about it, but it wasn't. It was saying, well, free speech has never been better. It's like, no, uh, China's clamping down like crazy. India is clamping down. Russia's clamping down. Turkey's clamping down. Europe's clamping down. The right to be forgotten is a thing. Uh, um, governments are setting up intranets so they don't have to deal with freedom anymore. Like it's, it's gotten a lot. Oh, and you know, also I point out in the middle of it, it's like, yes. And we've also got a three-star general who, who's got the ear of the president talking about martial law. Like, so I go through, we passed BDS legislation to prevent people from advocating for BDS. And I just go on and on. And so the first part of it's about the global situation when global situation is way worse than it was even just a couple of years ago and definitely worse than it was five years ago. Um, I talk about, the democratic recession at the beginning of that about the you know post 2005 um the number of democracies went from rapidly increasing to shrinking and also since then that's when you had you know in 2005 putin didn't have any anywhere near the power he did he does now erdogan doesn't didn't have anywhere near the power he does now um and of course china was still in, going towards liberalism you know modi hadn't happened yet in india um we so we are in a, a much worse uh, situation for a few now if you're saying that um, if you're making that sort of sly argument that people like to make, it's like, well, free speech isn't you know, the freedom from consequences. And those consequences you're talking about are jail, execution, you know, uh, all of these kind of things. Like, then I don't think if you're going to actually get seriously punished in, in the way that I think is much more likely now than it was five years ago in most of the world for, for your free speech. You know, I, I don't think it, it's an argument that there's more free speech. If you're simply making the argument that more people are getting online, Okay, um, but more people are getting in trouble for what they say online, too. Yeah, and there's also it seems to be not seems to be there is a, a developing, uh, if not well-established consensus amongst the left and the right domestically, where they, they both want to censor the kind of things that can be said and done online. That there is mm-hmm. this sort of oh, yeah. bipartisan cabal you could imagine trying to advance a legitimate effort to try and get Section 230 done away with, which that's that's all I'm going to say about it. Another time we're going to go in depth on Section 230 unless Greg wants to get into it. Um, but but that's all I'm going to say. Not, not predictable. I just, but I, I'm of course uh, sitting here with with my Catholic guilt being kind of like, was I unfair to Sean? And, it's, <laughs> and it really like if it if it had been written more precisely, I wouldn't have written this. But but I also was basically already composing this long piece in my head because there's something in the Washington Post where, so, where someone had written something like they and they only talk to people who are anti-free speech in this article about this horrible situation where the, where they have to tolerate the existence of this church that allowed racist people to be there and it just interviewed people who were really hostile to free speech ending with quoting somebody saying well free speech really is only for people in power and it's like right. well, <laughs> and, I, and I had to do a little riff on a little riff on basic civics here. It's kind of like, yes, well, you know, what protects wealth and power people historically, you know, what protects wealth and power, wealth and power, protect yeah. wealth and power. <laughs> they always have. Yeah. And, and that, so I, I did this quick. I, I have to do that. I have to do this, by the way, at the beginning of every talk I give now, um, because it, it's basic, uh, it's basic civics that people don't get wealth and power is protected by wealth and power. Once you get to, to democracies, uh, the majority is protected by the vote and therefore, you know, armed people and, and, and laws. You only need free speech as an independent concept for um, uh, for minority points of view. You only need a First Amendment for minority points of view and for unpopular points of view. Um, and the only reason why we've been able to invert this idea that power is on the uh, free, free speech is on the side of power is because and, and, and this is uh, and this is something I'm going to be writing a lot more about, but I really get animated about it. 
Um, higher education has convinced a generation of people that it is not one of the richest, most privileged, mm. most powerful institutions in the world. Harvard has uh, Harvard has just in its um, uh, just in its investments, um, the, the same as the uh, GDP of Lithuania, for God's sakes, like the, the at, we give tremendous power to the institutions. Um, that, uh, l- last time I checked, they had something like almost half a trillion dollars in assets alone. It's probably much, much greater than that now. Um, and but they have convinced a generation of people that they're the nice guys, that, that, that they're uh, that they're not they don't represent power. So when uh, uh, so this gives students a gen- uh, 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 for a couple generations, the impression that free speech is the, is the argument that keeps the people who want to protect me from doing the good thing. But as soon as you're expecting power to be on your side, that completely inverts. You're actually representing you're either popular with or representing the points of view of, po- of, of power. The power dynamic is completely switched. And without being able to own its own institutional power and privilege, we're, te- we, we, we're exporting this idea that free speech itself is oppressive across the world, which is a really messed up idea. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, first, Sean uh, Illing, um, who I like uh, quite a bit, we have to have him on to talk about this stuff um, because I, I know he does occasionally listen to the podcast. I think he's uh, an exceptionally uh, bright guy. Well, I'll buy him a drink. Yeah, you buy him a drink. <laughs> I'll rub his ear Catholic a little bit. Um, one sort of side note that I think that we should address very quickly is that I, I think that we don't talk about it enough because it just it hasn't seemed uh, like it's a, it's an argument or a problem that has really penetrated a lot of the circles that we you know run in or talk about. But the BDS thing, I always have to tell people who really don't understand fire is that Greg Lukianoff is not a conservative. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Haidt is not a conservative. These are people <laughs> that are liberals. I think you'd identify as, as a liberal. And they do defend liberals who are under attack on campus. And the BDS stuff, for instance, all the time. All the time you know? And there's, I mean, there's uh, pro-Palestinian groups that, that have problems. A, a professor at the University of Chicago, I remember, who, who uh, had a problem, I think is now a bus driver, um, but, you know, the BDS thing is pretty interesting. I think BDS is um, absurd on about a thousand levels. But these laws, actual laws in which people who were contracting with the state had to sign pledges that said that, you know, they support Israel's right to exist. Right. Oh, it's absolute and utter madness. And I think that we probably overlooked that a little too much because there's so much more of the other stuff. But one other final thing is that to the point that People saying this isn't an issue and it's not a problem. Well, I'll tell you what, this goes back really, really far in this, in this PC argument before it was, before we talked about social justice and, you know, the language they use now, cancel culture, et cetera. There was a book and I always have to look it up. And I think I've mentioned it once before because I remember coming across it when I was in college and it was a, a guy named John K. Wilson wrote a book that Duke University Press published. And the name of the book is The Myth of Political Correctness. The conservative attack on higher education. Yes. And there is a, a whole thing in it about, you know, there's not, like there's speech codes. It's total nonsense. It's there. And at the time, I was on the UMass campus where they had free speech zones, which was my favorite thing in the world. Because I remember saying to a professor, I thought the United States was a free speech zone. <laughs> Apparently, we had to be <laughs> corralled into these little places where we could say the things that we actually believed. But this has been the response. It's the laziest possible response, of course, because you 
don't actually have to engage in the argument in the, the compounding examples of this happening and ruining people's lives. You just say, doesn't exist. You're imagining it. So I guess to turn that into a, a question, Greg, what do you actually say? And I, you, you kind of addressed it here, but when people say it is, it is the most common counterargument these days, that it is in your imagination. It's this sort of you know, grand gaslighting of everything you're seeing is not real. And when people say that, you know, look, there's these examples, they're here and there. But how, what is the concise response for somebody who deals with so many individual cases of this? What's the kind of 30,000 foot view where you say, no, this is a real thing and I'm going to explain it to you in a minute or something, that this is actually a problem? There's, there's kind of no way to elevator pitch uh, and, and a, 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 a simple denial assertion. You know, basically someone saying that's not a thing. You know, it's kind of like um, I can say, yes, that's a thing, um, but that's not going to do it. And that's one of the reasons why I write 67 long, you know, a, a tweet long uh, threads, because I, I really wanted I want people to grapple with the actual facts of the actual cases, because like, like Camille pointed out, um, there's also this kind of idea that, OK, OK, you've proven to me it's a thing because I read um, and I see articles and I, you know, I, I and uh, increasingly they know somebody who's actually gotten in trouble, mm-hmm. but it's just well-intentioned uh, underprivileged people. And it's like, no, it's administrators taking uh, codes that were written to protect under, uh, underprivileged people and using them to protect their own power and privilege and, 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 and their parking garages, for goodness sakes. Um, it, so basically, like really getting them to uh, not deal with it in the abstract, to get them to look at the individual cases and please uh, and, and to take them seriously is something that I've been doing my whole career and, and, and I'm going to uh, going to continue to do. Because, yeah, if someone just wants to wish away um, there being a problem at all, um, you know, that, that that's hard to contend with. And the thing, the structure that I keep on seeing is that you'll have someone try to wish all this stuff away. But then say there's no free speech problem on campus, but the real free speech problem on campus is that liberals are getting in trouble. And it's like, okay, you just contradicted yourself and you're contradicting yourself to somebody who has is why you know about those cases. <laughs> like those are every single case you have listed is a fire case. I'm not saying that exclusively it's right wingers getting in trouble. I've never said anything like that. It would be convenient if I did, but it's amazing working at fire. How many times you will get an email from someone really pissed off that says, where's fire on this case? And sometimes it's, it's one of our donors, you know, wondering why we're asleep at the switch. Or sometimes it will be like someone smarmily asking, you know, uh, it, it, when it's a, when it's a liberal getting in trouble, like, where are you on this case, you hypocrites? Because you would never be in, involved in this case. And then you read the article, and we're actually quoted in the, <laughs> in the article. Someone from Fire is actually quoted in it, uh, and and it's amazing how much how many presumptions people. Oh, so, so Matt, that 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 sixty seven uh, tweet long tweet storm that I did already. Um, there, there have been a couple people saying it's like, yeah, but he, he would never take on uh, people, uh, you, you know, defend BDS or take on the Trump administration. And several people had to write in saying that's in the thread, <laughs> like that's actually right there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the, the tedium of being in the culture war and, and how much people bring <laughs> assumptions to it. And that's one of the reasons why I got really annoyed at, at, at this Vox piece, because it just has this kind of like uh, yet yet another nothing to see here in camp. Ca- uh, cancel culture, but but goes additionally far in basically saying that the world's never been freer when it comes to free speech when it's been actually 
pretty really troubling to, to watch um, how, how, how much things have gone south all over the world, including the U.S. in the past five years. One of the things that you mentioned a, a moment ago or a couple of moments ago, because we've been going for a little while and we'll set you loose soon. Um, but the fact that certain people want you to talk about sort of the identity politics stuff, the social justice excesses. Um, and one of the things that I've really been struck by and that I've tried to point out to people in different contexts is the degree to which a lot of the kind of cultural dynamics that are going on here um, are are kind of agnostic to any particular issue, um, that there is a sense in which it's all quite portable and a very real sense in which the polarization that's taking place, the kind of us versus them mentality is something that exists on the left and the right. And I think you you all do a good job in the book of detailing, not just hinting at this thing that might be going on, but providing some evidence to support it. Um, but I think you also point to um, a, a particular kind of identity politics. Um, and, and if I remember this, this kind of notion that not all identity politics is equal, that there are a particular variants of it. And one strain of it is um, this kind of common entity, common enemy identity politics, which I think that that phrase kind of struck me as something that's really important for folks to zero in on and think about and to think about the dynamics associated with something like that, where what's important here isn't so much what we agree on beyond they're bad, like whatever they're for, like we're against it, whatever they want, we need to stop it. And, and pretty much anything is acceptable because they are so very bad. And you you see evidence of that kind of zero-sum thinking in every single political conflict that's taking place. And yeah, I, I wonder if you could just chat about that a bit. We talk in the book about the distinction between uh, common enemy identity politics, which I feel like we're currently um, teaching on, on campus and in K through 12. Uh, and it's uh, when you take sort of like the... Um, when you think of intersectionality as a rhetorical device, as a way of sort of winning arguments, it leads to this very quick kind of, uh, you know, name the number of, of um, disadvantaged or underprivileged identities that you belong to, and therefore you can actually win an argument. And, you know, this is something that that you hear people say, like, that's not how it's supposed to be used. And I, and I remember hearing for like the first 10 years that I was watching this, like, that's not how it's supposed to be used. When it's being used, and by the way, at first, overwhelmingly by like relatively uh, by white dudes who, who grew up way richer than me in San Francisco and sometimes white women, you know, playing the whole uh, doing the whole sort of like rhetorical uh, technique of, of intersectionality. Now, of course, we also point out in the book that intersectionality actually has some validity to its basic assumption that, that different intersecting identities are treated in different ways that aren't the same as the as the two identities at, um, uh, distinctly. Um, but common humanity identity politics, on the other hand, um, is what, um, you know, it was one of the things that, of course, made the civil rights movement successful was the idea of appealing to uh, we're, we're all people like you, not you're the enemy, that we're brothers, you know, essentially. Um, also for, for the civil, for, mm -hmm. for the... Um, I am uh, a man. For the gay rights movement, you know, <laughs> common humanity, uh, identity politics, you know, really, really turn things around. Having people come out and let people know that, like, we're literally your, your, your you know, your sisters and brothers and uncles. Like, um, you actually already know us and love us, uh, which was a which was a major kind of idea of the 70s of having to come out because it will change the dynamic of how we think about this stuff. And that's those are formulas for wonderful progress. If the idea is that can't we, you know, all come together uh, uh, around our common humanity. 
But when it when it's turned into a zero sum game, you know, about kind of like who's going to win this on the basis of of uh, how much they can argue about their hardship, you have yet another formula for not getting to the argument that someone's actually saying. And and, and I could I'm, I've been meaning to write this for years now. People say I say this stuff to death, but I talk about this idea of the perfect rhetorical fortress. Um, conservatives have what I what I what I call just the conservative. Uh, mm. um, a rhetorical fortress, which absolves you essentially of listening to uh, experts, uh, journalists, or anybody on the left, and it's amazing at, at, like how much information that actually takes away if you can if you're absolved of listening to that. But given that the uh, th- that the left is kind of more dominant in higher education. Um, what's been developed on campus is just mm, like, it's just this absolutely amazingly complex system of layer after fortification, after layer, after layer of how you never, ever have to get to the substance of someone's argument. Never, ever. Um, and I talk about there being like, there's first, you know, first, I, um, if I can prove you're conservative, I don't have to listen to you. Then I go into the hard identity politics stuff. Um, and that's, you know, <laughs> and basically, if you follow the identity politics uh, privilege argument down the rabbit hole, it is literally, and I mean, without exaggeration, 100% of the population of the entire planet. So you've already got anyone who is conservative or can be mm-hmm. deemed conservative, which is one of the reasons why people are always so desperate to lump people they disagree with among the conservatives, because that, that lets them off the hook. Level three is uh, just have they done anything wrong in their lifetime? Again, 100% of the population, but if you can but if you can find that. Then you've got just the really sort of cheap arguments, like Connor Fieserdorf likes to point out, um, that, that include things like uh, punching up, punching down, uh, victim blaming, all of these things that they sound nice, but they really carry no actual intellectual weight. And when you take, particularly like the, the, the one that's considered the most sacrosanct, victim blaming, you know, uh, if you if you take them seriously, what they're saying is these are people who are merely acted upon. They don't actually have any agency. And particularly if you can see yourself, you know, since mm-hmm. I was like, I was one of those poor kids they were yeah. talking about. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, so you're saying I had no choice. There was nothing I could do. It was just, you know, like I'm completely helpless if you think about this stuff. So I, and the funny thing is I've never actually written about the uh, the perfect rhetorical fortress, but it, it's exquisite in its complexity. Greg, I know we're going to let you go here. I just wanted to to ask you one thing that. You know, I mean, you've written about it quite honestly. It pulled me into your book because uh, Cloudling of the American Mind starts with a few anecdotes about this and about safetyism as a concept. You know, you've suffered from depression um, for most of your life, I, I assume. I mean, you've talked about it quite openly. You've talked about hospitalizations quite openly. And I found the connection between that and, you know, your ideas about minds being coddled and how people are treated on campus and CBT, mm-hmm. which for those who don't know is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a wonder for, for so many of us who have tried it and um, who live in, a, in, in similar precincts uh, to you, Greg. So if you could just, you know, tell people a little bit about that in, in the kind of relationship of your own depression and what that did to the kind of writing of this book, because, you know, one of the things that I found interesting about it in, in CBT is the idea that exists in the world now, particularly in campuses and particularly in people in my social groups and, you know, the places I live, is to run screaming from things that might offend you, things that might trigger you, things that might hurt you, kind of 
you know, send you into little spirals. Whereas, you know, what I was taught, and this is why the, the, the reading your book at the beginning of it, I was like, oh, wow, this is the connection of two things that I've never connected. And I've thought a lot about hmm. of these things of like, no, 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 the absolute wrong thing to do if you are afraid of something is to run away from it, is to stick your head in the sand. People might think of, you know, you're afraid of, you have arachnophobia, drop a spider on them and maybe, you know, slowly build up to that. Don't do them right away, but drop a spider on them and then, you know, have them interact with these things. Tell me a little bit about that. That's, that's a quick closing question. The thesis of my, the thinking for my last 15 years. Um. <laughs> the, the, the correct response is I'm depressed. Fuck you. Stop asking me about this. <laughs> but, pricey of that relationship between that yeah. kind of thinking, which it seems totally separate from your day job and how those things intersect. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and no, I'll try to discover kind of the basis uh, for this book, since we are trying to wrap things up. Um, but yeah. And um, I, I, I and honestly, Michael, I, I will say this. Um, I don't have my annual battles uh, with, with, with depression like I used to. Um, I th- and I, I credit uh, CBT overwhelmingly for that. Um, I, I mean, for, mo- for pretty much my whole life, I'd, I would have some kind of bout every year, you know, at least once. Um, and, you know, I'm, uh, SSRIs don't agree with me. Um, you know, I, I definitely do take medication, but not, you know, n- not some of the standard ones. Um, and, uh, and it was a slow process of doing CBT and they would just come back a little bit weaker every year. And then eventually just they just kind of don't, they just kind of stopped, which, which is amazing. So yeah, I, I had, I, I had bouts of depression for, um, you know, most of my life and, uh, it, and it got really bad in 2007. Um, I was the new president of fire. I'd been for two years. That was incredibly challenging. Um, you know, I was in the middle of the culture war 24 hours a day. Um, uh, you know, which I found really exhausting. I, you know, I, I, I my job was like the source of, of, you know, girls not wanting to date me. I, I actually, I, I had, I, I had a breakup with a girl who, um, I said, listen, I'm a first amendment guy. I work for the ACLU. I defend Nazis, you know? Uh, and she actually said, well, I think Republicans might be worse. And I was like, so it was just, <laughs> um, let me just tell you, I'm not going to give you relationship advice, but that's not a real belt loosener on a date is I defend Nazis. <laughs> like, okay. Um, I, I can get Uber. Uber is their well, days. And so I, I ended up hospitalized um, because I w- tried to kill myself. Um, and, uh, you know, and when you're that far gone, I, I have a whole thread on what to on kind of what to do. And, you know, like the thing that the thing that really got me to call 911 was, um, you know, having this idea that I was starting to trying to talk myself out of it and realizing that there was this like part of my brain that was more or less saying, like, you have to do this. It's important you do this and you can't wait because you might not want to do it later. And that would be a lie. And something, some little part of my brain was like, wait a second, like just enough to get me to call 911. And so I went, you know, I, I got myself checked in. I went to the hospital and I never thought I was going to be okay again. I was sure I was never going to be okay again. I was sure I was going to be dead, um, you know, within the next couple months, but definitely not make it through the whole year. And I moved back to New York. I was living in Philadelphia. I'm always, I'm always deeply depressed in Philadelphia. Um, I moved back to New York where I have lots of friends. Um, I, you hmm. know, got a better support system around me and um, started doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And as I'm doing it, you know, I'm learning all these intellectual habits, you know, um, but, you, but they have to become habits. You can know them intellectually, but unless you actually practice them, it's not going to work. 
and you start talking back to those voices in your head and being like, well, and you're not doing power of positive thinking. You're doing rational discourse. You're kind of like, oh, actually, you know, like, uh, like that's, you know, this date went poorly. I'm not going to die alone. That's mind reading. That's binary thinking. That's catastrophizing all this stuff. And it doesn't even feel like you're doing that much until at some point, you know, like these voices would pop up in my head and they always won. And suddenly I was kind of like, eh, you know, kind of shrugging them off. And so it was an absolute life changer for me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm so devoted to it and take it so seriously. But here's the thing. Cognitive distortions are wonderful uh, rules for arguing with yourself, um, arguing fairly with yourself in, in your own mind. They're also good arguments for arguing with each other. They're also good uh, that you shouldn't overgeneralize. You shouldn't personalize. Hmm. You shouldn't uh, engage in binary thinking. And when I saw what was going on on campus, um, back before it was the, the, the students, when the administrators were telling everyone to catastrophize, I was like, wow, you're really kind of telling everybody overgeneralize, binary thinking, catastrophize, all this kind of stuff. Thank goodness the students aren't, aren't listening. And I've been thinking about this for years when the explosion of students demanding free speech, uh, demanding uh, uh, censorship uh, blew up in, in, in 13, 14. And, the, and to really underline it, they were arguing that it would be medically harmful for us to be exposed to this speaker or this speech or, and, and, and that made everything click. And I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of what I've been thinking about for years, but I still thought it was kind of a, a, a goofy fun theory that I still wanted to write about. And then I talked to Jonathan Hyde about it over dinner, um, uh, over actually at lunch in an Indian place. And we, uh, and he really liked it. And he, he decided we decided to write an article together and um, boy, it's been an interesting path. 400,000 copies later. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to five. Tonight. Going to five. We're going to do a half million thanks to the fifth column. <laughs> and, we, and we want our cut, by the way. We want our cut. Right. We know people who come see you. Um, I, I love that you brought that yeah. around to to some of the positive values that are important and that can actually help us have more productive conversations. And I want to say to anyone who's listening, and, and I'm, now I'm really going to sell the book genuinely, like, we've talked a lot about the things that are wrong and the things that are wrong that have helped to contribute to the current unhealthy environment that we find ourselves navigating. Um, but the book does have some concrete, I think, very thoughtful and important guidelines and recommendations for how we can get our act together collectively. And I think for that reason alone, if that's the only thing that was in the book, it'd be worth picking up for that reason. We really haven't delved into that nearly as much um, as we probably ought to. And that means that there's more we can do later. But it also means that you have a very good reason to go pick up this book. Um, and while it likely can't be a stocking stuffer for this Christmas, because I know you all revere the baby Jesus and are very excited about the coming holiday, um, you can buy it on Kindle um, and buy an extra copy for a friend because people need this shit. They need it. And Greg, I'm grateful for your friendship and for your hard work. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk to the board about getting you a raise. We need to do that. It's important. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Disappears. Um, just disappeared. Just, just hung up. So he can't hear us when we're Shouldn't talking wait. about it. No, he can't hear us. Uh, by the way, there's no problem on I'm college interested. campuses. God damn it. No. Why is he lying so much? It's an interesting thing about him. Is that he just lies constantly. Yep. That Lukianov. And I know that we've been uh, trained not to talk about people after they've yeah. been on our podcast <laughs> if they're not here. But I'm going to say it. Greg Lukianov is a liar. <laughs> he is a liar. He's the worst. He's the worst. He just lies constantly. That was an exercise in an hour of BS, people. 
see uh, causing the behavior. <laughs> this is BS, is what it is. I'd never, I'd never heard of CBT, so I'm very excited. It's really interesting, and um, the thing is, is that not, that is not. And and if for those of you who haven't read the book, just to be be clear about this, this isn't sandbagging Greg with a couple of things that I know about his private life. He's been very open about this, and it opens the book, and it opens the book with him talking about um, this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and how it relates to how students uh, in campus these days are dealing with some of the things that they believe to be problems, which I think, in my own opinion, are implanted in their heads and are told that there are problems. And then um, they're told that you should deal with this by running away from those problems. And Greg has a really interesting tie-in at the, at the beginning of the book. And uh, he's been look. He's been really open and honest about it on Twitter in essays. Uh, he's written uh, about it, uh, and and I found it all kind of quite comforting for from somebody who who trespasses the boundaries of of some of those worlds that Greg unfortunately inhabits. So to pile on here a little bit, at least with the praise. I mean, Greg is is genuinely one of my favorite people, and I think has he plays a really indispensable role in the culture and in our politics. And you know, there's there's something about the the tribe to the extent there is one, and and I think that it's distinctly different from most of the tribes that people are generally familiar with when they think about tribalism. Um, but the tribe that we all belong to, um, the sort of universalist, egalitarian, committed to ideals like the the liberal notions of free speech and a belief that these things are sacrosanct, you, you need people on the front lines who are defending those things full time, who see the emerging threats before anyone else does and get you to pay a bit of attention to these things. I think that's an opportunity to perhaps transition to something else that I've wanted to talk about for a couple of days, not had an opportunity to publicly just yet, but we can do it here. Caliphate, a podcast from the New York Times that I know we've talked about in the past um, and have heaped some praise Mm -hmm. on. Um, It's a podcast that is produced by people who we know. I know uh, Rachmini, although I may be mispronouncing her name, although I don't think I'm mispronouncing her first name. I would definitely mispronounce her last name. Rukmini Kalamaki, I think, is close. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's good. And Andy yeah, Mills, which is much easier um, to say. <laughs> both both <laughs> of them are the first people named in the in the credits there. Then um, that podcast won a bunch of awards. It scored tons and tons of downloads and was something that was generally celebrated in a lot of different corners. Um, but in the past week or so, um, that podcast has become a bit notorious as the New York Times has institutionally begun to distance itself from that podcast, I think is uh, a perhaps too soft a way of describing it. There's like a full court press uh, with respect to their efforts to flag this as something that was wrong, where mistakes were made, um, where you know the the top brass is going out and not, I don't know if he's doing public interviews, but he at least released an extra episode of Caliphate, which, so if you're still subscribed to it, that's popped up recently, um, where he talks about some of the errors that were made. And to to give a little bit of context um, for anyone who doesn't recall, Caliphate is a podcast about the Islamic states setting up this brand new state. And the controversy, at least, surrounding it focuses on an aspect of the podcast where they met a young man in Toronto who claimed to have been um, an executioner for ISIS, someone who had uh, family ties in Pakistan, went to Pakistan, somehow found his way into Syria and 
claimed to have done really dastardly things, cutting off people's heads and participating in other kinds of violence and had gone back to Toronto and was living there sort of freely and caught the attention of Rachmini and other folks at the New York Times and became a, a pretty important piece of this podcast. But charges have been filed. I believe, I'm not sure what stage the trial is in now, um, but the Canadian government is prosecuting him for being a part of a terrorism hoax, for having lied about having participated in these events. And the, the controversy here is that the Times is being said to have promoted a fictitious story and uh, being duped by someone who they've described as a, quote, con man. And it's inspired a great deal of controversy and a pretty substantial pylon where folks from the left and the right, folks who, you know, in some instances have had a, a hard on for the New York Times and have wanted to see it fail, um, are sort of gleefully dancing in the streets um, about what's taken place here. And I find myself a bit confused by sort of the level of controversy surrounding this podcast. Um, and in short, the primary reason is because I've listened to this podcast and I took a couple of days to re-listen to it again. And what's clear to me is that certain qualifications always existed in the podcast. There were always sort of strenuous efforts, um, so far as I can tell, listening to it. I, I haven't I have some experience cutting podcasts. So when I hear a phrase in the podcast, I know that you really wanted it to be in there. And when I hear it four or five times, I know that you really, really wanted us to get it. And there is a constant conversation throughout the course of this podcast about whether or not they could trust the testimony and the claims of this young man that they were talking to. And I, I can appreciate the New York Times owning its mistakes. And it seems to me that there were some mistakes made in the sort of reporting on this story. Um, but there is something about the sort of level of concern um, and the, the scope of the outrage that seems wildly out of phase with the actual product itself and the fact that it was terribly nuanced and that it did far more than just talk to this young man. The reporting in there where they go and talk to the Yazidis um, these young girls um, who had been taken into slavery, where one young girl has an opportunity to confront the man who held her in captivity and raped her repeatedly, and she can confront him because of this reporting that Rachmini is doing and, and the, the work that Andy is doing is just, it's astonishing. I mean, it's just some of the very best podcast audio um, I've, I've ever listened to. I mean, it really just elevates the medium. And I think it is a, it's a, damn shame um, that people are sort of piling on in this way. And I think in a number of instances are piling on without really giving any thought to the nature of the charges um, that are being leveled. And, and frankly, just the sort of substance of the podcast itself. The star of that podcast is not the young man who may or may not have misrepresented particular facts. And he did rep misrepresent some for sure. Um, the star of that podcast is the journalistic process. You see them going through the hard work of trying to figure out what aspects of this story are true and which aspects are not. And it's messy and it's complicated and somewhat convoluted in some instances and hard to keep track of as they're trying to piece together the timeline. But that's the way it works. And sometimes you get a good outcome from that process and sometimes you don't. Um, but 
I don't know, just, just there's aspects of this controversy that bother me. And I, I wanted an opportunity to, to throw that out there and apologies for the overlong setup. No, no, no. I mean, you know, obviously it's very important for us to, to, to mention that, um, we know the producer of the podcast. Um, I don't know, Rick Mini, I've met her, um, uh, but I don't, I don't know her well at all. I've met her one time. Um, but there are a few things about it that strike me. Um, one is that I've known people who dislike her for a very, very long time and have tried to, get her to be Judy Millard. <laughs> it's true. This is hundred percent true for, for many years. So I, I, that's important to keep in mind that it doesn't, you know, the evidence is the evidence. I mean, either she, she produced a good bit of journalism, a piece of journalism, or she didn't. Um, the response to that is of course, the New York times has thrown her to the wolves, demoted her. Um, all of the awards that it received have been rescinded. I think three of them at this point, including um, the Peabody award. Uh, which is which is a, a huge award. Uh, the one thing that I think is strange about this is the Canadian kid. And as you as you point out, you know, it's it, we don't remember things this way because he's such a compelling character and the story so compelling. Is that there are all these caveats in there? Like, do we do we believe this guy? Is, I mean, is he telling us the truth? It's a very hard thing to to uh, to prove or to falsify. But the Canadian authorities are prosecuting him right now. What are they prosecuting him for? It's a very weird thing. It hits the ear in a very strange way. For lying about being a part of a terror organization. How is that something to prosecute? for? Well, think about it a little more. And maybe this story will have a very different ending, um, you know, a, a year from now, two years from now. Because what do you do to somebody when you put them in a court and you say, you're going to go to jail because you lied about being a terrorist and lied about going to Syria and lied about being a member uh, of ISIS. Mm -hmm. How do you defend yourself? Well, you say, no, 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 I was a member of ISIS. No, 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 I did go to Syria. Oh, did you just admit to being a member of ISIS, which is also illegal to go from Canada and travel to be a member of a foreign terrorist organization. So it's kind of an interesting prosecution. So it strikes me that perhaps the Canadians are putting the squeeze on this guy because they think he was a member of ISIS and maybe he didn't do the things that he said he did. Maybe he didn't do, but, but, but by the way, all of this stuff is entirely believable because people who go and join ISIS, it's not something like, oh, there were members of the American military uh, who took the ears of uh, Vietnamese dead and wore them as, as necklaces and these people are bad. And there's Lieutenant Cali and we know his name because he was so bad. That is mm. part of the job. It is part of being a member of ISIS is lopping people's heads off, putting them in cages and setting them on fire, you know, enforcing this, you know, fifth century version of justice that we all know about raping Yazidi women was not something that was uncommon. It was, it was, you know, part of the program. It was, you know, a feature, not a bug. So, you know, if he's actually there, those details, you know, did he lop somebody's head off? Well, he was fighting on behalf of one of the most evil uh, forces in, in the 20, certainly in the 20th, 21st century, if not the past, you know, 500 years, pretty, pretty grim stuff. So what are the Canadians doing? You were there. You weren't there. Okay. You lied about it. Admit it. You're going to jail because we're going to prosecute you for lying. Oh, you don't want to go to jail. Okay. Then say you were a member of ISIS. Oh, you're a member of ISIS. We'll prosecute you in that. This guy is fucked either way. Right. And it strikes me that they're bringing him 
to court and charging him on this because there might be more truth to what the the caliphate podcast is saying um or 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 claimed or throughout there didn't even claim it maybe they just because i didn't i haven't gone back and listened to it i'm going to trust you on this Camille. All, all throughout all throughout i mean at one point andy andy says that this might be grossest catfishing like that you could possibly imagine and we're at like episode seven of nine when he's making that observation it never concludes with he's definitely telling us the truth about everything um even if i think at certain times it feels as though there is a, a an inclination to believe him about certain major claims like one were you ever in syria and it is important to underscore here that no one claims to know definitively that he was or was not in syria the canadian government is going to try their best to prove the case that he never went but there are members of U.S. intelligence who still say and said at the time that they believe he was there, if only for a short time. And again, these are important, somewhat ambiguous details, but they're appropriately scrutinized so far as I can tell, um, at least in the production of the podcast. And again, there's possible there are other specific issues here that one may want to make about this podcast. And I, I will say that if this this doesn't occur in a vacuum, you know. If the New York Times had responded in a similarly robust way with, say, another prominent piece of journalism that came out of its uh, its institution, which was the subject of scathing criticism from from academics, from journalists that even got a, a negative uh, critique written up about it two years after it was published um, by one of the folks who work at the Times, if the New York Times had been sort of similarly contrite and thoughtful in its responses to this, as opposed to kind of the the hand-waving, nothing to see here, anyone who's upset about uh, mistakes in the 1619 Project is, you know, call, calling too much attention to the wrong sort of thing or ignoring the profound consequence that it's had for, you know, the population more broadly. I, I just think it's obscene. Like there, there are lots of mistakes there. And the response was nothing like this. And I think there's something about this sort of disproportionate hand-wringing and level of concern here. Maybe they're trying to make up for that, the inadequate response before. Maybe it's just because this is a foreign policy issue. I'm not sure. One thing I will say about the case quickly, um, Moynihan, is it, it does seem that there is at least a dimension of the prosecution and the Canadian case that may have something to do with his intent. And it might be that the case is material to the the case that the Canadians are going to have to prove is whether or not his intent was to terrorize the the people of Canada by propagating this phony story. And to the extent they're able to make that narrow specific case, that might be the thing that gets him convicted, in which case there might be a little bit of room for him to go in and make an argument like, I was never there, but I also, I, I didn't say any of this to terrorize the people of Canada. And it may be that that's the kind of case that happens, but in either either way, like why prosecute him now? Well, I mean, they were embarrassed. <laughs> it's a weird thing to prosecute something. I think that I think they're really. I my guess is um, slightly informed guess, but I that, that they're trying yeah, to back him into a. Court. I don't. I don't really and, know how yeah. uh, third world countries like Canada handle their judicial. <laughs> um, but. Uh, in the uh, United States and America, um, when you're prosecuting, when the feds are prosecuting somebody for essentially lying to prosecutors um, or telling a dishonest story to FBI agents or whatever, uh, it's pretty common that they're trying to get them to roll 
mm-hmm. for the people who they're lying to. And we're, again, we're recording this on a Wednesday. Uh, President Trump uh, issued uh, pardons today for Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, <laughs> and also Jared Kushner's dad, who didn't really roll for him, but is just an absolute sleaze bucket who's related to uh uh, the Trump family at this point, but like, uh, uh, no, you're trying to get them to roll and you're pissed that they didn't. The, the person who served the longest in the Balco trial was not anyone who were like the steroid dealers. It was Barry Bonds's personal trainer. And the, the grand jury was pissed off that he wouldn't testify against Barry Bonds. And so they made Greg, whatever the hell his name was, uh, rotten jail because they were mad <laughs> and roll. Um, so that's a possibility. That's one bullet point. Another one, uh, and I, I haven't listened to the the podcast, but uh, I remember when the first news came of the arrest in Canada, Rukmini had a had a uh, uh, not a panicked at all uh, tweet or a response to us like, hey, this happened. Here's a possible explanation. And here's the episode in which we talk about that for the entire episode. His do we trust him? Do we not trust him? Uh, mm-hmm. How do we evaluate his claims? Uh, I wonder if there has been any similar such real-time hedging about the truth of the information about possibly uh you know uh, uh fantabulous fantastical claims when it comes to oh i don't know um icu nurses talking about deathbed uh mm-hmm. you know, denialism from covid patients in south dakota or idaho or some damn place where 12 people live um that was a national story for a week um, and I forget who exactly went uh, in in and actually did some reporting afterwards and said, you know, there's just really no evidence of this. And, and if you thought about it for two seconds and and knew how uh, healthcare is provided in ICU beds and COVID wards, it did. It also doesn't make sense. Like nobody who was involved in the journalistic fluffing of that story um, showed that skepticism in real time that was equal to the skepticism that the Times did in, in Caliphate. Nor did they walk it back and start like, you know, you know, re-reporting everything that that reporter had ever done to see whether they had a like a serial track record of it. There's something smelly going on here. And there is an absolute disproportionate thing. I um, don't know anything. So keep that in mind. Um, uh, Rukmini made her uh, her career from the outside looking in on some level um, uh uh, in foreign policy reporting and reporting specifically on the caliphate and ISIS and whatnot, um, back when there wasn't really a caliphate, she got hold of these incredible documents in the field showing plans of the Islamo bad guys um, and that were treated a lot with skepticism by by a longstanding foreign policy reporter hands um, and who uh, you could imagine probably uh, envied or doubted her scoop um, which I think uh, the, uh, over time has now been accepted as she had the goods back then. And in fact, the caliphate went from from very small to very big. And then it's been very small again, which is as a side comment, that's a really under talked about uh, thing about the Trump administration in, in particular. And it's weird that like, you know, it was a thing that everyone cared about in America in 2014 and nobody mm-hmm. does in 2020. And that's just, just interesting and strange. And then a the final point on this, is that an oddness of the way this is treated? When the Times wrote a story about how uh, you know uh, it no longer had confidence in the original story, you know whose name wasn't in that even mentioned as part of the story? Rukmini's name was not in there. 
It was her name was not mentioned even once in the article in the Times about how the Times is distancing itself from the story. That's just weird. I don't have a theory about it, but it's just like weird. Like there's, it feels like there's something weird going on, and it might be something weird that reflects very, very badly on her, very, very badly on Andy. Who knows? Uh, I tend to think probably not, but uh, it's possible. But regardless, there is just something odd about the whole thing that suggests that um, the proximate cause of what they're talking about cannot be explained or like the vociferousness, the just the whole thing around it cannot be explained so far by what they have talked about publicly is the thing. Yeah. And I, I should say, I mean, because, again, I, I started out by saying I do. We. We know these folks. Um, Andy is a friend. I, I admire him. I adore him. I think he's incredibly talented. He is among the very best podcast journalists on the planet, like literally. I mean, he does numbers. He collects bodies. Um, but he's also just a, a really great guy who's very serious about his work and has a tremendous amount of integrity. I don't know Rachmina nearly as well. I've probably met her one more time um, than Moynihan has and had some correspondence with her. And we've also talked about the really great reportage she did on the Breonna Taylor story um, for the New York Times um, fairly recently. But I, I haven't talked to either of them about what I just said here. I don't know that any of us have in, in terms of sort of preparing things and getting some background to share with you all. Um, I just think it's it's important to be able to it's important for me anyways to be able to to underscore something that I see happening that seems quite strange and yeah, definitely a little more important to me when it's someone who I know um, and have a tremendous amount of respect for. And to the extent you, yeah. you presume that I'm saying this to defend a friend, I would just say, check it out, go back and listen to the qualifications that are there baked into the piece all throughout the podcast. And it's not to say that there aren't other mistakes that might be material, things that other people will find if they're able to stand on the back of this reporting and look at new things with fresh eyes several years later. But it just seems a bit strange to me. And I don't expect perfection from journalists. You will make mistakes. <laughs> look, I would just say people are uh, like to gloat about this stuff. People like to gloat about these types of errors. People really enjoy it. You know, when I did a story on general error, they love to see the downfall of general error um, much more than they were interested in actually what he wrote mm. and what actually happened. Um, a lot of people d still didn't really understand the the kind of nuances of the story. There were some nuances of the story when they were dancing on his grave. There's a, there's a bit of that that people always enjoy. I would just say hold off a little bit. Um, obviously, the people who give awards... The second, I understand it too, because the second the New York Times comes out and says, we kind of, you know, are, are qualifying, <laughs> to say the very least, our own story and our reporting, is that, you know, I'm interested to, to see that because you know, the, the podcast itself raises doubts about his, his claims. And I remember that very specifically. And also there were, they said, and I haven't talked to either of the people involved in this, uh, that multiple intelligence agencies and people within intelligence agencies, I believe in the U.S. and Canada, said that they believe he did indeed go to Syria. And what happens in Syria, what they did in Syria, becomes a very murky thing, which I think is what um, comes across in, in, that, in that podcast. But keep in mind that there was no interaction with the Canadian Royal, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police when they the, this kid, this uh, Chowdhury, I think mm -hmm. his last name was, uh, was talking 
the New York Times and talking to Rick Meany and Andy Mills. And it was after that that the authorities got in touch with him that he said, I made it all up. Kind of curious, right? I mean, you, you're talking a big game and and other people in, the, in, in certain intelligence services are saying, we believe that he went there. And then he saying, uh, when he's contacted by the authorities saying, I made the whole thing up. Kind of curious timing that all of a sudden he made the whole thing up. And according to them, and this is an important thing, and I don't believe any of either of the two people involved this to be liars. It, definitely not. Um, you can say, oh, well, you know, for the purposes of a podcast, they really kind of overdrew the portrait. Fine, if you want to say that. But do you believe, and ask yourself this, do you believe that they are lying when they said, at, as this was kind of uh, coming out and attack, uh, attracting the uh, attention of the Canadian uh, intelligence services and Canadian law enforcement, that he did or did not say to them, when they asked me, I'm going to tell them that I made the whole thing up when I was talking to you. I'm just going to tell them that. That's what that's what you know the the Rukmini claims, and I have no reason to to doubt that that he said I'm just going to tell them my lie. You hear him say it in the podcast. Oh, he does. He actually say it in the podcast. He does. Yeah. So they're addressing it that much. It, oh, it's God. always seemed strange to me the the degree to which this kid was just very open with her um, in discussing his involvement in these things, and then is suggesting that he would lie about it if pressed. And again, just the weirdness of the circumstance is something that, that really does, I think, come through. And the fact that he's, he's lies to them. He lies to them and they catch him in lies and confront him about his lies. And there is yeah. this constant effort of her to try to get him to, to level with her, to be honest with her. She actually does that to a few people. And again, when she's in Mosul trouncing around, finding caches of documents, it's gripping stuff. Like it's astonishing to have something only audio. There's no like actual guns being fired at the people who are doing the reporting, but it's kind of got you on the edge of your seat. Like I just did a really good job. Maybe he's lying and maybe it's all bullshit and we can't know that. The only thing that I will say, there's something weird about this investigation yeah. and the Times piece disavowing it. Something just doesn't sit right with me. And that's not because I know um, the producer. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, well, we can, we can move along from that. Um, I don't know, gents, you got anything else? Uh, how were your, your holiday plans? I know, Matt, I heard you were planning to have like 30 people at your home, maskless, <laughs> juice. from the same plate, sharing the same <laughs> fork. Why are you having Hasidic people come over? And uh... Because of this podcast, we've, we have made friends. We, uh, <laughs> we're, uh, actually we were joking on the, on the Twitter machine, uh, that uh, Nancy Rollman and I went to B&H to buy some uh, equipment, which is B&H is a wonderland of consumer electronics people uh, in New mm -hmm. York. Like if you work in any kind of audiovisual, anything uh, and a bunch of other things besides you, you're going to have to do business with B&H. Not on Saturday, though. But not the fuck on Saturday. <laughs> oh, you can't even check out on the website on Saturday. You can't check out. No, no. There's not even a Shabbos Goy who will like do like the Shabbos Goy will come and like do process the payments. Because the thing is, it's like alternate side parking in New York. You have to look it up. Is there some weird Jewish holiday I've never heard of today? <laughs> you can buy a new microphone in 2024 because this is three years of atonement. Or the workforce 24 six <laughs> over, over at B and H. It's uh, it's uh, super great. Uh, no, I the only uh, note that I would add to our conversation is. Actually, a some idiot wrote this. Bring it oh, back. Wow. There's a back. piece, I swear to God, 
And I actually tried to get uh, Moynihan's blood, blood sugar spiking with this. Um, uh, again, in the same New York Times, uh, in that broad category of Times coverage about that it's basically designed to make upper middle class bourgeois people feel guilty about their consumer choices. It was about the problematicness of tiki bars. Yes. So they're going to get beyond their, their, you know, they're, they're struggling right now and, and kind of come to grips with their historical racial inequity. <laughs> That's what's really urgent for them. It the is a fucking parody of a parody of a parody, except none of it is funny and none of it is a parody. I can't fucking believe <laughs> at a time when like the entire restaurant and bar industry is going out of business in New York and in the rest of the country too, um, that we're going to like talk about how the, pressing issue here is like you know um they, they present this image of like oceana um that's sort of divorced from the reality no shit fucking sherlock really? like <laughs> culture yeah, is kind of a made-up totally. post-war americana pastiche thing and it also fucking awesome <laughs> that's the point <laughs> and that's why it's fucking great and go fuck yourselves i love it i love this idea that it has to be a reflection of the like the realities of the culture so if you go to like a cambodian restaurant you has to be like poor people there and then like monuments to the khmer rouge it's like no i just i just want some, i just want some of the food do i have to, do i have to go through it? like and, and, and by the way this didn't surprise me because when i was in portland there's like a tiki bar in portland and um, I guess it's a famous one or something because I can picture the outside of it. And it was I think it was on one of the lists of like cultural appropriation is like, you know, the, every drink that you buy at the Tiki Bar in Portland, two dollars goes to like a poor Polynesian person. <laughs> because you're taking their culture to get drunk and, you know, these Easter Island head uh, uh, ceramic uh, glasses, and you're like, well, that's not really Polynesian. The whole thing, and, and, and it's amazing because the point that you make is the right one, is that as restaurants are going out of business, it's like, could you, could you not go to this restaurant if it does open up again? Just don't go there. It's closed now, but if you if it does open up again, do not have a drink there. And it is these upper middle class New York Times readers. Let them destroy themselves. If they want to remove all the fun from their life, yeah. God bless them. Have Go ahead. Ruin your fucking lives. You people are miserable losers. And I hate you. And I never want to see you at a bar, tiki or otherwise. So you know what? Keep reading these articles. Keep reading articles like that. Keep having all the fun extracted from your life. And I'll never have to fucking run into you. The more articles you write about this, for me, it's a roadmap of, for where I should hang out. Because you, you fuckers, won't be there. Boring cunts. <laughs> Sorry. I said that in an Irish way, not in a, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, by the way, um, before we edit all of that out, because I, <laughs> I said a bad word, I do want to give a shout out to um, a listener of ours, mm. Aaron Monheim. He sent us a few messages before. He's a Patreon subscriber. And uh, he's uh, he's a sick man. And, uh, you know, look, if even sick, the sick guy, he's a Patreon subscriber. Yes. So you have no excuse. <laughs> Literally the guy who's in a hospital bed takes a selfie with his, giving us the thumbs up. He was, uh, hooked up for, to a quote bastard of an infusion because, uh, he's got MS and he has to have these 
horrible treatments and uh he listens to the fifth column which makes the treatments a thousand times worse uh, because he has to listen to us assholes make horrible points can you imagine bad enough to be a nurse just in general but then like someone's like blasting some fifth column at them like oh no oh my yeah God. he refuses to listen on headphones yeah of course he's got a boom box where he's a cassette of it he's yeah. sending him cassettes so aaron we're, we're sending you a new pair of airpod maxes just like camille's no we're not I'm kidding. No, I do have them, but I, we're not, not sending them to you. Thank, thank you, Camille, for really rubbing it in. Uh, and <laughs> he's like, no, I can't buy those because I give you money for your Patreon. And you're like, yeah, I know. I bought amazing headphones with it. I'm surprised. We're not building a studio. Camille isn't busting his chop, not going never fly coach. Like, Come on. Well, I will interject uh, before Camille uh, is even meaner. And Aaron, uh, we're wishing you good health and uh, speedy recovery from this this uh, latest uh, shitty infusion and uh, a Merry Christmas uh, to you and your family. So Amen. hope you feel better. And I hope this doesn't prevent you from drinking. Um, I, yeah, 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 yeah. You should have another drip that has drink. just <laughs> fucking booze. In it. If the doctors <laughs> say it's okay. Yeah. You know, we don't want you to, yeah. to deviate from the recommended course of treatment, you know, yeah, please, um, don't. please don't. Well, you know, I'm I'm delighted to see this this year come to an end. Um, lots of uh, lowlights, lots of highlights as well. Um, and uh, I, I suspect we'll probably have a dispatch or two more before we conclude the year. But yeah, happy holidays to everybody. Hope you enjoy it. Let's do a 2020 um, greatest hits episode mm. for the people who aren't on Patreon to entice them to come to the Patreon. We'll do we should do a. Uh, uh, greatest hits uh, of the Patreon stuff. But the thing is, is that I don't remember anything that happened in any of them. I got, I got like a, 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 we got received an email today. Uh, Moynihan, this must have happened late because uh, we recorded last night at Patreon. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, Moynihan, you, you really got to get that lump on your testicle checked. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, what? That was in there. We have people that are very concerned. Who's cutting this greatest hits thing together? It's not me, right? It's you, Moynihan. Uh, Wimsett is doing it. Um, <laughs> no, but the other thing I want to add to it is I don't want the greatest hits record. I want like the shitty predictions too. So when Camille's like, this COVID thing's not a big deal, it's fine. Don't, it's, <laughs> it's, it's less contagious than the or flu. Even the cut of Camille saying that Trump's definitely going to win. Like, oh, he's definitely yeah. going to win. Oh, he's yeah. definitely going to win. Oh, never happened. Yep. Never happened. So never pardon Paul Manafort. Never I, happened. I did say that Melania, Melania would stay. I still think there's a chance of it that she will, in fact, win the Electoral College decision about the First Lady mm -hmm. yeah, and whether or not she... <laughs> She she displaces Jill Biden, who will have to go off with Donald Trump, just like a I didn't know a, that a, a wife's. I didn't know that the Dr. Melania can win. Yeah. That would be great. By the way, if she um you know is is no longer going to be the first lady at the end of January, and you know what, it's still up in the air. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Who knows what's going to happen? But if she doesn't, I would encourage you, Melania, be a little more independent. You don't need him. Be in my first job recommendation is get an account on Cameo. And on Cameo, you should be $1,000 a pop. We will pull 1000 bucks together. And then you, we will make you do a promo for the fifth column. And it will be the greatest thing that ever, ever happened. Don't spoil my thing. No, Don't I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to spoil it. You can still date her. No, not that thing. What thing? The other thing. Yeah, yeah. No, we have a Cameo idea. It's, it's totally different. No, but I want that. And if it's 1000 bucks, not enough. I know, you know, you're, you're, Husband is definitely a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> oh, the trick there, Michael, is to write 
a word combination in English that inadvertently mm-hmm. is pronounced similarly to porn hookers? Well, yeah. we are waiting for yeah. you to do the promos. <laughs> it's going to be good, the promos for the columns. <laughs> How many columns do you have? We have fifths of them. Fifths of the columns. You might have six of them, but that's not good. The one that you like is the fifth one with the Camille, who's a black black man. He's a man who's black, and we like him. <laughs> Fake news. Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. <laughs>